Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Warzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwerzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video, so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Noah Breakstone, CEO of BTI Partners. BTI is one of the largest land developers in Florida. They do mixed-use ground-up developments throughout the state. We discuss how Noah finds these sites, what he looks for in a land development, how he then holds them, develops them, and sells them to home builders. We also talked about the exciting projects that he's been developing throughout the state, what he's learned, how he's survived multiple downturns, and his strategy on debt. Please enjoy my conversation today with Noah Bragstone. I thought a good place to start would be to learn how you got into real estate, how you came up in the business, and how you built the company. Yeah. Well, those, that's a lot of questions. It's a way. lot, but you can take it wherever you want. <laughs> so how did I start? Actually, it was very interesting how I started. My father and my mother, my father is an architect and engineer. My mother it was an interior designer, and they were in the development business. So I, I always was around development, and they were involved with many multifamily deals, single-family deals, a couple hotel deals. And my father raised us, always said, development, terrible business, go do your thing. And I never thought about development, even though I, I grew up exposed to it. You know, understanding, you know, my parents as being artists, I was around art and design and architecture my whole life and I loved it. So I went off to college and I have, uh, there's four of us, four siblings. I have an older brother, older sister, and a younger sister. And I was graduating from school and uh, I was graduating a semester early. And my mother had flown up and she said, you know, you know, what are you looking to do? What are your plans? I said, I'm interviewing with some Wall Street firms in New York City. And, uh, you know, the same investment banking firms, I'm sure, as we all know. And I said, but I think eventually I want to go into development. And she said, well, why don't you? talk to your, your, your dad about it now. I said, no, I, you know, and, you know, I never really thought about it. And I ended up having a conversation with my father and very light one. And he sent me a very, you know, I have sheets funny. I haven't talked about this for maybe 25 years. My father sent me a very touching letter and I, and I have a copy of it. And my father said, I never brought up the development business and you coming working with me because I never wanted to weight you down. And I felt that your opportunity was so great, what you wanted to do, I wanted to always let you fly. 
and actually a little emotional for me to share the story. And uh, it was really great. So as I was interviewing for firms in the first semester, because I was graduating that semester, I saw some job, some job opportunities that were through training programs, a couple of the investment banks that would start six months later. And I said to my, my, my father and my older brother, because he was just a look to, looking to start a development, hey, I'm going to come down to Miami, maybe I'll, I'll work with you guys for four or five months, and then I'm off to New York. And long story short, I never went back to New York. And that's how I uh, ended up getting into the business. And I started off with my older brother in developing a townhome community in South Miami. And it's just that story continued on and, you know, turned out to be beautiful. When you look back on it, what do you think the most important things were that you learned from your dad on the real estate side? So my father, which is still living, uh, is 97 today. My mom passed away about 14 years ago, 97. Amazing, right? His father lived to the time he was 19 until he was 98. I say 19 because he's actually born in 1898. But my father, he was, and still is today, an incredible mentor. Soft-spoken, very strategic. And, you know, my father always taught me to really look at what what do, what does the market really need? What's the need? How do you solve that problem? How are you really giving value? And I think that's what he, he I, today is one of the main cores that I drive to. What's the problem that we're solving? How do we create value? And I think that was the first lesson. And the next lesson he always said is always anticipate the worst because it is going to happen. And in real estate, it is guaranteed. And so whenever you get into a deal, figure out what is your worst case scenario, because it, it's just a matter of time. And in, in, in any career, it's not going to happen once. It may not happen twice, but it's going to happen three or four times. And after 35 years of doing this, uh, he's proven himself correct. What are some of those moments looking back on it? where you've thought about the worst, but then you figured out how to go ahead with the deal anyways. Because a lot of you know lawyers, probably they're not real estate people because they wouldn't go ahead and do the deal. Yeah. But real estate people somehow find a way to figure it out and just push through. So, you know, listen, in, in development, I'm also a boater. They tell you that the best time boating is the day you buy it and the day you sell it. And my answer to that is, well, then you're not a boater. So in real estate, the best day is the day you're going to buy it when you have a performa and everything's going to go wrong. So just if you know that going in, you're in better footing going forward, knowing that things are going to go wrong. So I always look at that downside scenario and it's always part of what we do. And going in, we know that you know, things change rapidly in, in the market environment. And in my career, you know, I, I could name them for you. It's, listen, I started and I had the Gulf War. I had Hurricane Andrew, which was devastating to South Florida. 9-11 happened, but it wasn't an incident. But we were, you know, thoughtful of what happened during that time. 
the great financial recession, 2007 and eight. I mean, we keep on going through these world events. Now that you think you understand all these events, then you next, you know, you find out you have COVID. I mean, my God. So, you know, I've seen those ups and downs. And I think the number one theme that I think is my biggest protector, and I attribute it to my father too, is my father always would say, I've yet to meet a developer that's gone out of business that had zero debt. And if you understand how to use debt responsibly, you can weather any storm. If you are highly leveraged, if you know, uh, if you use a lot of mez, it is the formula of juggling dynamite. And it's a matter of time when you juggle dynamite before you blow off a limb. And so, you know, I've always maintained that we've never had explosive growth, but we've never had such a detrimental downturn or something that was so destructive that we couldn't weather in terms of our firm. And so, and that's the way we run our firm. We're low leverage. We try to use as much cash as we can. We go in with our eyes wide open, knowing that the market's going to change, timing events are going to change. And I think the other thing that we try to do is adapt very quickly. I've learned in this business that you just have to accept where you're at. And the quicker you accept it and the quicker you adapt, your first losses are your best losses. And every time I let ego get involved, it costs me more. So the quicker I learn that and the quicker I can adapt to the situation, that's what we try to do. And, you know, I can give example after example after example of that situation. And it's proven to be valuable to me. How have you learned to deal with those losses when they come? You know, the way you learn to deal with them is you accept it and you move on as quickly as you can. A lot of it we can't control. Listen, the first development I ever did, actually, I'm sorry, it was the second one. The first development I ever did for no good reason, everything turned out perfectly. Everything, I mean, construction worked out without any issues. Sales were incredible. The profit margins were phenomenal. I thought this was just an incredible industry to be in. Everything worked out perfectly. I've never had another deal that worked out like that ever again. So you, you, you just, you have to, you know, as you go, you have to twist and turn and, and learn. Because my second deal, very simple, I, I hit Hurricane Andrew. I sold out a development, a luxury townhome community. And next, you know, it, my costs went up, you know, 40, 50% and everything was sold. You know, there's no way to make up margin when there is no more sales. So, you know, you learn how to go through it. You learn how to, to adapt to that change, to that environment and be very realistic. One thing we try to understand is accept the situation you're in. Don't reject it and figure out your game plan to move forward and, and execute on that, on that plan, understanding that it will change. Having gone through multiple cycles, are you able to spot patterns where over time you figured out how to take advantage of certain situations that you might have not realized or figured out earlier on in your career? So what's worked, the answer to that question is yes. And 
I have a friend that's in the real estate business that said to me um, about four or five years ago, you know, what I've realized about you, Noah, is you seem to make good money when times are good, but when things get bad, you seem to crush it. And so, you know, in, inherently, I find that my style is very opportunistic. So when we see markets change and they're, it's timing issues, I tend to jump on them very quickly. And what I realized is the bigger the opportunity, the more the discount is, the faster we'll move. And I tend to really like those opportunities, those challenges, because let's go to the first premise. When you buy a real estate deal, everything goes wrong. So if your entry point is discounted, it really, you're, you have built into your deal the dumb tax, the tax for making mistakes, tax for environmental changes, geopolitical situations, interest rates, whatever may happen, it's built into the deal. So when, when markets shift, I tend to have a lot of comfort in buying when people are fearful. And if, if we can achieve those, if I can achieve those discounts, I feel very comfortable. You know, the perfect example to that is uh, during the Great Recession, we went from 150 employees to uh, eight in a matter of four months, five months and adapted very quickly uh, to where, where the, you know, the market was, and we were looking for distressed opportunities. And one of the areas that we looked for opportunities were in distressed land deals throughout the state of Florida. And everybody said, well, how do you, how do you buy these land deals for master plan developments when you know, we don't know if it's gonna come back in two years, five years, or 10 years? And my answer was always, well, if it's developed and it's next in line and I'm buying this land at 30 cents on the dollar for the cost of the improvements, I understand it's a question when of not knowing the perfect timing, but I know it will. And by making that type of, you know, of investment in it was a, a very big change in our company, put it, you know, moving us forward, but feeling comfort buying those types of opportunities all cash was an exhilarating time for us during, you know, the great recession. The kind of financialization of real estate has led to much shorter investment horizons. So when you're going out and thinking about buying land, particularly during the great financial crisis, you could have been in there for 10 years. You could have been in there for five years. You just didn't know. Over your career, has your idea of hold period and investment time changed? You know, that's also a great question. So I tend to be, again, opportunistic in thought and more uh, a contrarian investor in how I place my money. So the way I look at it is this, there is a lot of people today, or even during a downturn, what do they look for? They, they, they look for current income, they look for current yield, current returns, covering their current investment. And what happens is it's a very competitive environment competing for that yield. So in land, there really is no current return. 
you know, when you buy a large land tract that's next in line for a master plan development, and that land may not be ready for one, two, three, four years, there is no return. And so there's not a lot of people hunting that type of opportunity. So what happens? The prospect for return for yield is much higher because there isn't a current return. So there's a, a saying in investment, and I'm sure we, we've all heard it a long time. You can't get rich in IRR. You get rich on a multiple. So, you know, I'm a multiple return person. So that's what we hunt. We hunt multiple. IRR is important, but we're hunting multiple. And so, and that multiple is achieved because there's not a lot of people hunting deals like we hunt typically on, let's say on the land side, because the current returns aren't there. So, but the returns on multiple are typically very strong. And that's really what our, our, our investment profile typically looks for. How do you think about asset classes? You started off saying you wanted to be a developer, but how did you think about where you wanted to go in terms of asset classes? And now you're at the point where you've seemed to have narrowed it down. Is it still really narrow or are you open to different types of properties? So, you know, one of the drivers I'd mentioned to you is really being opportunistic, which is fun and exciting. But one of the difficult things, I'm sure as we both know in real estate, there is a specialty that you, you, you develop. You're in hospitality. Hospitality is very different from single family for sale, which is different from single family or, or condo for sale product, which is different from multifamily for rent. And every area has its specialty as industrial has, retail, everyone has an area. Today, some of those lines are blurring because infill property requires more mixed use. But our focus, my focus over 35 years of doing this has been primarily residential for rent and for sale and driving with mixed use, but with the basis of the majority of the return circling around the resi because it's a natural area for us. We dabble in other areas. You know, I'd mentioned to you previously, we got into hospitality. And so we, and the driver there for us, and just to give you a little uh, backstory for a property that we bought, was because we were opportunistic. Back in 2010 or 11, there was a property in Orlando called Grand Palisades and a condo developer that was looking to do more of an Airbnb type of concept with the condo hotel sold out everything during the run-up, sold out 1,100 units for the Grand Palisades and got a construction loan and built out 60% of this massive 2 million square foot development that were all two and three bedroom condos and never completed the development, realizing his buyers weren't there and the market crash happened and all of his buyers were international. So realizing that this could be a condo hotel, I sat back and the driver there was buying a $150 million loan of improvements for $30 million. So the entry point is what attracted me of great $150 million of construction and the land was included where I can buy for $30 $30 million. Seemed like it paid the dumb tax for me. 
to get involved into a condo hotel or hotel business. And that was our entry point there. But it's not typically our primary focus. How did that do. deal turn out? The deal turned out after seven years of selling 1,100 units, which they're 100% sold out. And in selling our hotel front desk, it happened to be exceptional. And, you know, it was the convergence of a lot of things happening. Number one, the cost basis that we had was fantastic. And believe it or not, what helped us there was COVID. You know, during COVID, in the beginning of COVID, the hotel was empty, obviously. And to have 1,100 units, 2 million square feet of hotel, it's a little scary. And we contemplated shutting it down for a period, but we kept it running. And when doors started to open up and people wanted to travel locally, the property was thriving because all the units in this kind of hotel were all two and three bedrooms. And so the drive to market for the property, uh, it, it just skyrocketed. People wanted to get out of their house. They wanted to drive somewhere. This was a safe environment. It was a two and three bedroom condo hotel. So it was spacious. It was large, not your traditional hotel room. There was a water park that was part of the hotel. And our drive to market, we achieved ADRs about, I'd say easily 40 or 50% higher than we ever expected to achieve. And it's just continued to grow and flourish towards the end of COVID. And we recently sold our front desk and did exceptionally well. So our overall investment in that property was, it was a hit for us. The multiple is good. The multiple is very strong. Are there any other aspects of that property that you'd like to try and replicate in future developments? Excellent question. So internally, we talk with our executive team, hey, we, we, we spent the money on the dumb tax to learn how to sell condo hotels, how to operate a condo hotel, how to make this thriving for us. Because the asset class of condo hotels is not overly popular, but this one is successful. And the long and short of that is when we really look at our cost basis, of our construction costs being really almost 65% less than what the market was. I think that was a key driver of why that made that property be an asset for us that we couldn't duplicate. And after struggling with our team that learned this process, we decided to move on and not continue looking for other properties and to build them from the ground up where our cost basis would be our actual cost. And we opted not to continue. So when you, you know, we're coming into an environment where interest rates are rising and there could potentially be some opportunities and some distress, how have you positioned your business from a debt standpoint to weather impacts that are out of your control? So. Whether the market is strong or soft, we're not a high leverage company anyways. So, you know, where we, where, where we currently stand, you know, our, our exposure is very limited. If we're going to do a project, uh, a multifamily project, and there's construction risk, timing risk, and interest rate risk, usually before we take on a deal like that, we're buying a swap, something to, you know, we, I rather pay up front knowing I have a fixed interest rate, I know I've capped my exposure. Now, listen, there's many times where I pay it 
And I realized that I paid it for not. It wasn't necessary. Listen, in the last year and a half, it's worked out. It but pays. Yeah. In, la- in the last couple of years, it's worked out. But it's very, listen, it's unusual. Most of the times uh, I, paid, I paid for the insurance policy that wasn't needed. So we are exposures limited right now to any risk in that area. So it's a good place to be. But what we try to do is during this time where, for example, when you see the 30-year fixed mortgage, even for housing, you know, more than double in the last 12 months. So a 30-year fixed mortgage in, in, in the residential area is probably 7.2%. I looked up this morning and we're over a year ago, it could have been, you know, 3% or three and a quarter. It's a very big change. And the same thing for commercial loans or construction loans. And, and that cost has been a very big pivot. When you look at exit multiples for multifamily or for hospitality, it's been a very big pivot. Your return on costs have changed dramatically. So what does that tell us? What does it tell me? We've been slower to move for new opportunity. We're trying to look at the environment to see how we can be opportunistic. As of now, I don't think we've really found anything that I could you know, share saying that's been opportunistic in terms of an acquisition, but we're patient. And it may happen. It may not happen. You know, it's, we're, we're unsure, but I think we're prepared for it. And if you're an opportunistic player and you look for those, th- that type of timing, you just don't know when you least expect it, it happens. And if you can, if you can seize that opportunity, there's nothing better. I'm curious to know how you found partners that align with your multiple vision, because if you look at all the wealthiest families in New York, there are all these big names that probably no one's ever heard of, and they've accumulated this wealth over time. But in the 90s and the early 2000s, all these institutional private equity real estate firms came out. And that's when like all this IRR, three to seven year hold periods started to come up. I wonder if the tried and true path of multiples, and I'm just going to hold it until someone offers me an insane amount of money is the better way or is there some strength in the institutional side is that just a fad you know it's hard to know i think there's room for both i I think it's the classic investment decision it's an allocation and i think that's really what it is There, there is an allocation that you'd make for current income and a multiple play that goes with it and it's it's a quicker turn a quicker adjustment to it like you said, uh, the five to seven year game is the long exit, but they they prefer it to be three to five years. And the difficulty in that investment strategy is the churning. After you get the money back, what do you do with it? After you get the money back, what do you do? Because you're you're hunting the multiple with that IRR. And so I think when you get larger funds, pensions and endowments and uh, larger family offices, they do appreciate the longer turn of the investment focused on the multiple as an allocation that goes with it because it limits the churn issue of yep. the investment. And so I think it's a, it's a function of allocation. I want to talk about Florida a little bit because you've spent basically your entire career living and investing in Florida. 
Why is that? And why have you decided to kind of optimize your business and your life around the state of Florida as opposed to having 10 offices around the country doing what you do? So the best answer to that question is real estate development, to no surprise of both of us, is a local intimate business. And you really have to understand what's happening on the ground. And, you know, we're very granular in our approach. There's really no cookie cutter formula. We do this hotel and we're just going to duplicate this residence, this Marriott residence in and take this floor plan and take this exterior and this footprint and duplicate it in multiple cities and multiple markets that meet this geographic concern. It's not our approach, you know, so we have two primary businesses. We are land developers, master land developers for next in time land for large pieces of land that we buy, that we we deliver super pads to the public home builders and the regional private home builders. And to do that, these investments are seven to 10 years. When we buy something, it's not ready for to go vertical on it for three to four years after we get entitlements, planning, design, and we, we install all the infrastructure, the water, sewer, drainage, and paving. So this type of business, again, it's understanding the local governments, understanding the zoning, understanding the political environment, going through all the municipalities and getting water, sewer allocations, donating properties for schools. There's a lot of local politics that, that, that's involved in the process. So for us to do it at this point, Florida seems to be a place that we're, we're extremely well mobilized and understand. And on the other area in our business, which is more urban infill development, it, it's the same thing. It's the politics. It's taking a piece, going through the zoning, understanding the local government. And there's, there's so much local intimate knowledge that since our model is not replicable, like a McDonald's or a Burger King, it requires us to have people in, on the ground in those municipalities that we work. So we, we, we're right now, we work with probably over 14 cities, eight counties, and everyone has different zoning attorneys, different engineers, d- different lobbyists. And we have offices in each of those markets to be able to do it. So it's the way they work. However, as our land division continues to build, I think we will be outside Florida and the Carolinas very shortly as we, as we continue to grow in that area. But, you know, our local intimate type of approach has been a key driver in our business. What are the characteristics or criteria when you're driving around your car, looking at different markets, looking at different parcels of land that you identify as a good location? Well, it goes back to also your last question. I would add something that goes to a good location is Florida. Listen, we've been blessed in Florida to have really an exceptional state. The weather's fantastic. The tax environment is great for for the primary liver resident in the state. It's a pro-business environment, typically. And markets not in South Florida, there's plenty of land you can develop in Tampa, St. Pete, Orlando, and Jacksonville, which are the other major MSAs. 
there's growth opportunities, there are land opportunities, there's land affordability to be able to provide for housing. So when you take all these elements of affordability, okay, growth, a proactive state, great weather, a great tax environment, the debt in migration to the state has been truly attractive for years. And, and right now, Florida's hot, exceptionally hot compared to the past. So I think those are the things that we look at. I started off by saying, you know, residential housing is one of our primary focuses. If you have job growth and you have population growth, you need housing. And that's the fundamental driver. Population growth, job growth drives housing. And the markets I just mentioned to you, South Florida, Jacksonville, uh, Tampa, St. Pete, Orlando, and the secondary markets that are associated with them have had tremendous growth in that area. Are there any elements of Florida that concern you for future long-term growth? Yeah, I I think there are. I, I think, listen, I think housing affordability has been a huge problem, not only in our state, but throughout the country. And to really start dealing with uh, housing affordability really requires a public-private effort and partnership to deal with those issues. And it, it just has to be dealt with. And you know, some of the ways that you deal with that is by having really strong public transportation to be able to get people around the city so that they don't need their car, they don't have to spend one, two, three hours a day in their car driving and reduce that commute time to be able to have mobility, I think takes a very big effort for private enterprise to work with our public government to make that happen. And I think we're seeing that happen. I think Brightline that we're seeing and our rapid transit, you know, I think today, I believe, I think one of my senior executives is supposed to be on a train from Miami to Orlando. It's awesome. Okay. It was supposed to open last week. I believe it's happening today. I didn't get a text from, but, you know, to have that type of commuting capability, that connectivity where South Florida is connected to Orlando, which is connected to Tampa, which is connected to Jacksonville, and where everything works together, I think will be a very critical driver to the growth of our state, to growth to, to, to the cities that we talked about. And I think we just have to learn how to use that connectivity to be much more efficient. I think COVID helped us understand the great work at home experiment. And is that working or is not working? that not working? It's hard to say. I know if you work for a company, you're gonna, you're gonna basically say it's working perfectly. And if you own the company, you may have a question whether it's working. But I think there's going to be trade-offs. And so I think how we look at transportation, how we look at technology, and how we make those trade-offs is going to be a very important ingredient, success of Florida continuing to be a driver of, of housing and affordability and job growth and population growth and something that has to be continued to be addressed as we continue on. Has Build for Rent come into your investment equation at all? Uh, You know, it's a funny story, Built for Rent, because 
I, I laugh because I remember the call. It actually, the, the call that I got was a person I bumped into on Los Olas yesterday, a good friend of mine I went to college for that was at Colony Capital that calls me up in 2010 and says, hey, no, I need your help. You know, we, we want to make, we want to buy foreclosed distressed houses from foreclosure auctions and start renting it and creating a whole rental system for individual houses. And I'm like, oh, listen, that's crazy. It's a waste of time. <laughs> I said, listen, I'd love to help you, but I really don't want to dedicate time. That's something that's so granular that makes no sense to me. Right. I mean, I, again, and here, here's, here I'm a person that's uh, opportunistic, that believes I'm entrepreneurial. I couldn't see it. And what's amazing is it's, it's a real industry. I think technology was very helpful, you know, how we securitize it, how we, how we, how we run it and maintain it, you know, it's, it, it's come to fruition and I think it's a real industry and I think it will continue to grow. I have not participated in it, as I mentioned, but I think there's a lot of growth in it. And I think we'll see, as I mentioned, in our land division, we get constant calls that people that want to buy pods of uh, 150, 200, three, you know, either between 150 to 300 homes to do single for family for rent communities. I think that it will continue to be a vibrant market. And it goes back to the whole issue of ownership versus renting, providing mobility, providing optionality. So, you know, if you have a family that moves and has the ability to rent a home in a community that's well amenitized and well taken care of, I think there's a lot of attractiveness to that. And when we see interest rates today, the 30-year fix, as we mentioned, hey, it's, it's better to rent. In housing, the optionality, you see their rent versus own. And interest rates high, you're better off renting. Interest rates very low, you're better off owning. So I think that market will continue to, to thrive. And as it continues to get even more professional than what it is today. I almost wonder in your business, if you can think about it like Amazon, where they know what they're selling and then they can start white labeling their own products and sell the same thing like batteries, for example. They were yeah. selling a ton of batteries. Everyone's calling them saying, hi, I need batteries. And then they make their own batteries. Yeah. Do you do that with your land where all these people are calling you to do something? And then you're like, wait a second, why don't we just develop it ourselves? You know, I, I try not to compete with my, my buyers. And what they do, they do exceptionally well. When you take companies that, let's say, for example, based in, 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 in Miami, Lennar, they are, they are extraordinary operators that have purchasing power, economies to scale, systems and procedures that for a one-off builder or a local or a regional builder, they have huge advantages. And you go to all the public builders. Actually, you know, when I started in the business in, 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 the, in, the, in the residential and the housing business, the top 40 public home builders, the top 40 builders in the country probably represented 15% of the housing starts. Today, it's over 40, 45%. Wow. You know, huge consolidation, huge economies, warranty. You, you have somebody standing behind your product. You have, you know, the ability to, to, to get the best design, the best purchasing power, the best economies to scale. 
I think there's a lot of advantage. So we, we don't try to compete with them as we go. It's funny, uh, I mentioned Lennar as one of the public home builders that, that we deal with, and you mentioned Amazon. And I recall, I think maybe two years ago, two or three years ago, was listening to Stuart Miller speak. And Stuart is the executive chairman of uh, Lennar. And I think he's brilliant. Great operator. And he said something so interesting and it's never left me. And, and I'll share it with you. He said, imagine Amazon giving you the home so you can fill it with Amazon stuff. The home was free. You know, and it's funny, we laugh at certain concepts, but look where Amazon is today. You know, and so the progression of where we're going and, and what Amazon's done. And, uh, you know, Amazon said, hey, maybe we'll deliver everything ourselves. Now they have a fleet of planes. Yep. You know, maybe, you know, this cloud storage, maybe we'll, you know, everything that they've evolved, they've taken it to such a different level of understanding that, you know, it's very intriguing to see where housing's going, whether it's manufactured housing or modular housing, or how technology is improving the efficiency of housing. So there's a lot of areas that'll be very intriguing to see where the industry, how it progresses. But clearly there's been a lot more consolidation. Education is also a big driver for housing. Like people move to good school districts and those sorts of things. Is that something in Florida that you pay particular attention to when you're looking at land to buy? You know, Jake, were you in our, our staff meeting? Or, <laughs> no, you know, but actually I had a conversation <laughs> with a guy who's raising a fund and all they're doing is going out and looking at the best school districts in two states and buying single family homes in those states and signing three-year leases with families that are looking to move to put their kids through high school in the a, state. So there's no question. If you look at the quality of the school, you'll see the appreciation in the housing. If you see low-rated schools, you will see how the neighborhoods are treated, the, the appreciation housing, the correlation. It's right there. There's no question. So we own throughout the state of Florida at this time about 10 major development sites that we're working on. And it probably represents about 25,000 uh, residential units. And part of these developments, when you do our average size is about 5,000 homes, but we allocate areas for town centers, for commercial and retail. We allocate areas for public parks and recreational areas. We allocate areas for a fire department or a police department. And of course, the last area you touched in, we allocate areas for lower schools, middle schools, and high schools. And on that theme, we our focus, our recent focus is to really understand how we can help our own communities on having top-rated schools, eight-rated schools. Whether it's vis-a-vis dealing with the school districts and, and, and working on ensuring that outcome, or we take that land and we create a partnership with the charter school system. And whether it's so, whether it's through the public school system or the charter school system, it's a big focus of ours. 
to try to do what we can to ensure that we're putting in a rated schools or a system that's going to work on being a rated, that's going to promote the arts and theater, that's going to promote STEM for the future of our children. And I think it's a win-win for everybody. And it's why it's one of our focuses. I think our, our greatest natural resource is our children. You know, how do we give them the best environment? How do we make them, you know, we give them all the tools that they, they need. And so it's something that we've just really in the last quarter are jumping in, you know, with, with a lot of time and energy to explore, can have some of the best schools within our, our, the neighborhoods that we're creating. Great. It's a great question. Very critical. What have you learned negotiating with some of these big public home builders? You know, we have, when we deal with a lot of the publics and even the regionals, but more so with the publics, we deal with them in several, several locations, several markets in several cities. So it's not a one-time transaction. It's a multiple deal transaction and a multiple year transaction. So everybody tries to play as nice as you can. And, you know, listen, when, when the market shifts and changes and interest rates double, you know, there's, there's only, when, when you look at a house, there's only so many components that go into it. So let's talk about it. We have labor. You ain't, ain't, can't do much about the cost with that. Right. You got material costs, products. They are what they are. And as labor goes up and transportation goes up and fuel goes up, those product costs go up. Okay. We have interest, carrying costs. Well, we've already talked about that. So when you get to the last element, it's just the cost of the land. Yep. And your your housing costs when you when you when you financing is it's just it's a function of of your income. So there's not too many drivers you control other than the driver of your entry cost, the cost of land. So we try to be very cognizant as we talk to builders as we go through times of interest rate escalations that we see right now you know, how we can meet their needs. So, you know, a lot of things that we try to look at is when interest rates are low, you can afford a lot more. When interest rates were uh, 3% in 2022, a year ago, uh, a little over a year ago, you know, the average price of a home in America was probably, uh, you know, 500 and, you know, 50,000 to $600,000. When interest rates are double, you can at least see that affordability start dropping precipitously. So we're, you know, we're probably looking at an average by the end of the year, an average home being at least $100,000 less or more. And that's just the reality of the situation. So when we deal with the public home builders, we try to look at it as a partnership. And interest rates are high, costs are high. So what do we try to do? The lots typically are going to be smaller. You know, it helps the affordability issue. Homes become smaller too. So homes that you saw at the peak that could have been 3,000 square feet on average, 3,500 square feet, now are dropping to 2,500 square feet. I was looking at a survey, and I think you'll find this amazing. I think the average size home today, new home, is about 2,500 square feet. What do you think the average size of a home was, a new home in 1950? 4,000 square feet. Okay, 4,000. 
You ready for this? It was 900 square feet. Really? Yes. I'm way off. Yeah. But 900, it was, you know, two and a half times smaller. Wow. So we have, this is, this goes to being, uh, living in America and having more and wanting more and having more space and homes growing and, you know, lots growing. Yeah. In 1950, the average new home was 900 square feet. Today, it's 2,500 square feet. I think in this type of situation, but we see it. Let's go to New York City for one second. Daughter lives in New York City. I mean, when she first moved there, she got a, a studio apartment. It was 380 square feet. I mean, who can live in three? <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, it, it was her first job out of college and yep. that, that's, you know, and w- w- it doesn't make sense. And she thought it was huge. And I think that's what we're going to see happen in, in Florida and some of the major MSAs in the downtown markets. We're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to change. We're going to have to understand labor costs are increasing. Material costs are increasing. Fuel costs are increasing. Interest rates, really a 7% interest rate going back 20 years was pretty normal. We're just not accustomed to that. But if you look at the long-term trend of interest rates, eh, six and a half, seven percent is pretty normal, but not normal for this time, not what we're accustomed to. So I think we're going to have to start using some of those, the, those valves and start turning where homes will have to get a little smaller. Lots may have to get a little smaller. If you want to live in the major metro markets, the further you drive, gives you more affordability. And that goes back, it's a very circular argument why we need good transportation to be able to transport people. But these are the challenges that we have today. And it's, they're substantial and housing affordabilities is critical. The other thing is what a lot of people don't realize just to touch on it, which I think is very interesting, is after the great financial crash, housing's never recovered. We are undersupplied with new housing in the United States. Freddie Mac did a study. There's different concepts what that number is, but Freddie Mac's study said we are undersupplied 3 million housing units that we need to, to deal with the current need of housing. So we're undersupplied. Interest rates are high, costs are high. We have a lot of crosswinds in this market to try to deal with that issue. And uh, housing affordability is a, a key driver. So knowing that supply, demand, imbalance, why aren't you just going around buying every piece of land you can possibly find in Florida? Well, we, we are active buyers. <laughs> that's the, really the, long, that's the long-term intent. And the reason why we, we, we are in our land strategy, long-term land buyers, is because you just can't turn on the spigot to create more land, develop land opportunities. It takes, by the time you get a piece of land and you take it through entitlements and you do the design and the engineering and the permitting and you put it in the water sewer drainage bathing, that is a three to four year process before you're ready to go vertical. So that spigot cannot be turned on immediately. And that's why I think the product that we have, the next in line land, to be able to deliver just-in-time land to the public and private home builders is really so critical in the industry and also so valuable to our investment. 
Yeah, I want to hang on that for a little bit because we talked earlier and you explained to me why the home builders don't just do what you do. Yeah. Why is that? So when you look at the, the home building industry and the public home builder, they are viewed as manufacturer's homes. They're builder homes. They're not, they're not investors in land. They're not investors on getting entitlements, going through the entitlement risk, the putting in water, sewer, drainage, and paving, not in their, not, not in their purview. And so when you look at the public home builders, Wall Street says, hey, public home builder, you should have an inventory of land that typically is three to three and a half years of land. Okay. And you should, as you sell your land, because the land they own is not income producing for them. So for them to buy 5,000 units in one locality, which would take them 10 years to deliver, makes absolutely no sense in terms of the use of their dollars. So they need somebody to come in on the front end to be able to be the master plan developer, to put to go through the entitlements, to go through all the design and engineering and permitting and the infrastructure development to be able to provide them the land that they need. And I think that's that's where we see a great opportunity. And by the way, it's a struggle for a lot of the public home builders. They have land divisions and all they do is try to develop the relationships with local land developers to be able to have the inventory they need to provide land for their upcoming projects to fill that need for them. So are you working closely with these land development groups within the builders to understand exactly what they want? And then how do you mitigate so, a pivot? Well, we are the land developers. We know a lot of the local ones. We're really more a, a regional land master land developer. I think where our secret sauce is, you know, the land that we buy typically is from farmers that have owned the land 50, 60, 80, 100 years. It, the stories that we can tell you from the sellers, they're multi-generational are really some some wonderful stories about the history of Florida. I mean, we'll we'll have land sellers tell us when their great grandfather or grandfather came to Florida on a horse and they legitimately would fence out areas and say this is my land and they farmed it either with cattle or farming or or orange trees or groves. The stories are are the history of these families are phenomenal. So, but when they sell their land, usually, you know, again, it's a thousand, two thousand acres. It's in the path of growth. It may be off a major highway. It may be off Florida Turnpike or I-4, one of the major, you know, artery uh, systems. The public home builders don't have the capacity to take that size of a parcel of land. A lot of the local land developers don't really have the capacity to spend the amount of money that it takes. And again, this goes back into the non-income producing assets. When you, when you buy this land, the cost basis of the seller may be, you know, $500, $100 an acre. We've, we, we know people that we've talked to that spent $100 an acre years ago. And, you know, we're, we're buying that acreage for, $15,000 an acre, $20,000 an acre. And when you sell 1,000, 2,000 acres and it, you have to go through the entitlement process, it's a very long t- 
time-consuming, cumbersome process. And there's not a lot of groups filling that need. And it's something that why we believe it's a partnership. By the time we find a piece of land and we know we're, we're going to close on it and we're not going to deliver it to a public home builder three years from now, they've already told us this is what we're interested in. Hey, we'd like to do townhomes. We'd like to do 40-foot lots, 50-foot lots, 60-foot lots. We'll take you know 500 lots a year for the next five years after you deliver it to us. And so we're already programming the land to fulfill their need. And that's why, you know, we look at that relationship to be very programmatic and more of a partnership with them in terms of fulfilling their needs. When you drive over the Florida Turnpike, you get into these rural areas and you see a mass amount of distribution centers now. How has that asset class impacted what you're doing on the residential side and why don't you also work with some of these distribution groups as well? So the easiest answer is the answer why I could tell you that uh, you're in the hospitality area. Why aren't you in in single family residential or multifamily? Isn't all land the same? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So are you in full service or limited service hospitality? Are you in the suburban markets or the major metropolitan markets? You know, you have your specialty. So when I see in these industrial areas or, or logistic sites that could be off major transit areas, I say, isn't that great? It's just not what we do. We do have some sites that have logistic areas that's just natural that will be surrounded with residential and other uses, but it's not the key driver of how we look at it, of just buying that small node, but critical. I mean, but we look at for, you know, sometimes it's easier just to give you an example. We have a site that we own three miles off the Florida Turnpike, just south of the Orlando MSA. And it's in Osceola. Actually, it's changing to St. Cloud right now. And, And why this is not applicable for home builders now is, well, when we got there, the Florida Department of Transportation said, hey, we need to put an off-ramp on your off-ramp on your property. We had to negotiate that. There was eminent domain of taking of land. We had to value that. You know, we had to figure out between two cities uh, how to handle water, sewer. And, you know, when you get into these complexities of, uh, well, you're pulling in the sewer, but we have to be prepared for the future growth for another another 20 years. So we have to oversize your lines, not for what you need, for another 20,000 units after you. And so the complexity in what we do is just not suited for the public home builder. They want product immediately. And we try to stay ahead of that curve. That That's part of what we try to do. We go, when we started our conversation, one of the fundamental drivers is how can we be opportunistic And where's the need? And the need is for the public home builders is somebody that's willing to buy these large assets that are next in line that will take three or four years that are not income producing to be able to provide that land to them over that period of time so they can continue to manufacture housing because that's what public home builders get paid for is to manufacture housing. What are the biggest mistakes most people make when they get into the land business? And what were some of those mistakes you made? God, you know, uh, 
where would I start? You know, uh, I, I think it, it's some of the things that we talked about. We try to limit those mistakes, but it's the unknowns. You know, when we go in, we do a tremendous amount of diligence on water capacity, sewer capacity, where are we pulling from, how we're going to do it on the underground, how are we getting the power or the electrical grid, how does that work, schools, what are the expectations in the city? So I think that's all the preliminary work. It's all the unknowns that come in that really are the, the mistakes that happen. But are they really mistakes because we can't control them? You know, um, it's very tough to figure that out, but you have to be prepared for it. So I think, you know, uh, one thing that we try to do is going back to the, one of the first themes is what's our entry port point in terms of our cost of our land, knowing that there'll be mistakes and we just have to, to deal with it. And then, you know, so the honest, I'm trying to figure out the best way to answer the question. So if I answered every one of the mistakes I probably can sit here and tell you why we would do no deals because we would have to factor in every one of those issues. And by the time we get done factoring every one of those issues, the economics aren't there. They would have to pay me to buy their land. How's that for new theory? It's good. (laughs) So, you know, what we try to do is limit the risk. That's the best we can do. So I think my goal as a real estate investor, my number one goal has always been never lose a penny of equity. I've been fortunate to have that happen. So, you know, we always try to go in looking at our downside. How can we limit that risk of never have threat of equity, never over leverage? So our leverage is very calculated in the land side. It's basically zero until we have contracts with builders. And, but unknowns happen. And so we just do our best to limit that risk. Actually, I shared one of them with you and I tossed over it quickly and I'll just take time to say. So I have a couple thousand acres south of Orlando that involves two cities. And we made the deal for all of our infrastructure with one city, and then it was going to be incorporated into the second city. And the agreement, the interlocal agreement was whatever one city did would be automatically accepted by the second city. And when the second city got it, they decided that the capacity, the size of our water mains and our sewer drains were adequate for our project and a couple more projects, but they wanted it adequate for something that was five to six times larger. Now, who's going to pay for that capacity? It's one thing if you put in 36-inch lines. Now they're asking for 48-inch lines. Oh, by the way, the lines have to be three miles long. Wow. Right. So what we find ourselves when we find ourselves encountering these situations, listen, we try to sit down with the municipalities and cities, explain to them why, w- what we did, what we forecasted, what we see, that we'd like to solve their problems, but we can't solve every problem after our development. And so we've been able to structure deals, work at creative environments, you know, creative structures out where, you know, cities will pay us 
impact fee credits for oversizing things. And when we sell to home builders, they buy the credits back from us. So we've have, we, we design creative structures to do it. We have tax incentive agreements with other cities where if it doesn't economically make sense now, whatever their tax base is today, if I'm paying X today, but with the improvement, I'm paying three times X or four times X, that the incremental tax, we get a rebate of 95% of it back for seven years, for 10 years to recoup the money. Yep. So it's a lot of these structures now that we have a lot more experience with, with getting credits, doing tax credits in deferrals and rebates that we've been creative to try to work around the structures to create the win-win-win. But it is challenging. It is really, really challenging. And I'll say this, if I tell you I figured it out, I'd be lying to you. And right around the corner will be another problem that I've never seen before. So every city has its nuance and uh, we just try to be very creative and very quick to adapt to the situation and solve the problem. All right, my last question on land. If basis is so important and critical, it's really the one variable, it's your only variable that you're going to make money on. And so one variable that the home builder has to negotiate with, how do you know if you're overpaying, getting a great deal, because there's not a lot of comps for 5,000 acre yeah. tracks. You know, listen, it's, it's math. Very simple. For the average home builder can spend anywhere between, for the average priced home, for an approved lot, anywhere between 18 to 25% of the value of the home. Okay, that's what they can pay to us. Then we just work backwards. What are we paying for water, sewer, drainage, and paving? What's our carry cost? What's our entrepreneurial profit that we look? What's the cost of money over time? And it's really a DCF that we work with and we estimate all those values. And of course, the, the most important is your contingency that you have in there. And you know, we, we do our best to estimate it. And the reality is this, if the market's great, we do a lot better. If the market is a in, a in a very challenged or recessionary environment, you know, we slow down our development. We, we, number one, when we develop too, we only develop in phases. We're not going to put $100, $200 million into the ground without having forward contracts and deposits that are very sizable. So everything we have, it, the risk is very calculated for us. We're not, you know, we're not building it and they should come and, and they, they will come theory. That so we always limit our risk. And the bottom line is, I'm going to tell you this on the land side and on, on the development side, you got to be prepared to stop and you got to be prepared to wait. And that is the nature. It's a when question, not an if question. And we know in our model that when you take things out on a purchase between seven to 10 years, you got to know that you're going to hit a market period, uh, that you're going to be in a recessionary period. And we, we take that in mind right up front. And it, it's just a critical factor of what we do. Is there anything that you've learned over your career to identify when things could start slowing down, where you can get ahead of it? Because it's a moving train that's going very fast. It's hard to just stop it today for tomorrow. Yeah. So I think you said something critical. 
the moving train that's moving fast. When, when, when everything gets heated, we tend to not move that quickly. We want to move steadily, knowing that we're not getting ahead of our skis. I think that's the key for us. We, we don't, we don't over leverage. We get forward contracts. We're responsible. We know when things start heating up and the train's moving fast, it's just a matter of time. You know, I'll share a story with you. And I think it's, uh, it's one of the stories that always stays with me. And it happened right before the financial crash and where everything was going nuts in terms of real estate. And I was, it was at a condo conversion that I was doing. And we probably had five or six of them going at that time. And I mentioned to you, my father is currently 97. So let's go back to 2007. So he's, you know, 15 years back, great, uh, 82. And he's meeting me for lunch at the opening of one of our sales centers for one of the developments. And legitimately, people waited in line overnight, stayed overnight in line to buy. Oh, you don't remember during these times during the- I uh, do, but I yeah. haven't thought about it in so long. It, like, yeah. the, today, people, the iPhone's coming out and like people are doing the same thing. Yeah. Okay. People, we had people that slept overnight to wait in line. We were going to sell off that day. Done. That development would have been sold out. Another development we opened up a month later, sold out in a day. And my father was meeting, he was outside, he calls me on, a, on, on my cell phone, he says, why don't you come outside? I said, no, no, come in, let me show you around. Show him around the project and the development, the cell center, and I'm walking out to go to our car to go to lunch, we just opened. My father puts his arm around me, very respectfully, and this is a man that I have the utmost respect in everything he says, always comes from a place of love and respect as a father and as a mentor. And he says this to me, and I can to this day remember every word with absolute clarity. He says to me, Noah, people do not stand in line to buy real estate. And I looked at him confused. I'm like, wait, what do you mean? This is, this is, where, this is the market. This is where we're at. He goes, all I can tell you is this, people. Do not stand in line to buy real estate. We dropped it. We went to lunch. We never discussed it. And I really reflected back after what happened a year later. And know what I realized? People don't stand in line to buy real estate. And so the lesson to me is when things look impossible, they are impossible. When things start heating up, don't get caught up on it. Slow down. Be thoughtful how you proceed because it is a matter of time something's going to happen. And if you're so caught up in it and on that fast train, it is impossible for you to be opportunistic when there's a change in the market. And I've learned that. And I was fortunate enough when the market, cha- when the market shifted to be able to Take the losses, the entrepreneurial losses that we had, and not threat, not have threat to, to to equity. You know, clean up our balance sheet as quickly as we can to be able to be opportunistic. And so I've learned 
when that train starts moving very fast, that is not going to last. I slow down. Now, I've been wrong, but that's okay. This goes back to we're not going to grow at an, you know, at an uh, exponential rate. We're not going to be an internet company. We're a real estate company. And I think that really helps us prepare for the bad times, which we, we excel in and we also excel in the good times, but we're not running to the point that we can't be prepared to uh, uh, not weather that storm. So around that period when you shrank from 160 people to 14 people, what were you thinking about from a culture standpoint and a people and process standpoint? Because you basically had the ability to kind of start over. You were forced to start over. Let me tell you, I mean, let's be realistic, okay? There is no culture. <laughs> I mean, you can talk about culture, core values, which are great things to talk about. When you're looking to really figure out what's happening and survive. Remember, in terms of housing, the peak, we were delivering in the United States almost 2.5 million units a year. And we went down to 450,000. We went down 80 75, 80% in deliveries. I mean, how do you, I mean, that, that just tells you how you have to absolutely resize in everything that you do. It is extraordinarily difficult to be concerned with culture. Very difficult, sadly to say. The, the key then is, hey, the boat needs to float. The boat needs to move forward. And the country's taking on a lot of water. Let's, let's get this boat in order as quickly as we can, figure out what the environment is, and move forward. You know, I, I remember many executives at that time you know, so when, when you're selling so much product and things are moving so quickly, imagine what, you, what you're paying you, your key people at that time. You know, we had project managers, superintendents, let me just say superintendents, that before the run-up that we were paying $75,000 and during the run-up we were paying the same people, 150000 Imagine what senior people were getting paid. Right. And I had my senior team tell me, hey, no, I can't take a pay cut. Hey, my lifestyle is here. My house is here. My cars. I have, you know, schools. And I'm like, this is where the market is right now. We have to move quickly to, to really survive and thrive. And I had people say, listen, I think it's better for me to leave and pursue other opportunities. Now, of course, when they left, there was no opportunity to pursue. But that's the reality that you have to face during these, these, I mean, this is a, when you have a financial crisis and a deep recession that we had, you know, these are extraordinary times that you have to take extraordinary efforts to make changes. And, you know, that's what we went through. So when you go into thrive mode, then what changes? So you're taking these extraordinary measures. Yep. You eventually have to get a team that's going to be hungry and that's going to rip again. What, what changes? So I think, so during the thrive, the acceleration times, we're just, while I see people accelerating at 200%, you know, maybe we're accelerating at 120, 110. You know, while people are taking on a lot more debt, 
we're not changing the dynamic. As a company, we have never used MES in anything that we've done. We've never uh, oversized the amount of debt that we used on, uh, on anything. And it limits it. Listen, if I have debt that we take on that's 50% LTC, you know, our leverage to cost, while people are taking an 85, 85%, you can just take on a lot more risk. You can do, a, you can deploy a lot more capital. So again, we try to slow it down. We try to be cognizant. We understand that we're not going to get every deal, but we rather be opportunistic when things change. And I think that's just, just the culture of who we are and who I am and something as, uh, as, as we all were immigrants is my, my grandfather came as an immigrant, you know, never completed high school, never went to college. My father was the first one to graduate from college. I stayed at the basics, you know, like I said, we're not a technology company and we stayed to those fundamentals. As you've evolved in your role and the company's evolved, how has your leadership style changed? Again, we're opportunistic. You know, the way I call our group is we're hunters. Uh, BTI, we buy to develop, activate it, add value, and sell. So we're not holding a portfolio of 20,000 multifamily units. And, and, and that's a viable strategy, not the strategy that, that, that we've taken. So we're, we're hunters. And being in the hunting mentality, you eat what you kill. You know, so uh, the culture of our company is one to move the ball down the field, to see progress, to score. And, but at the same time, have an engaged team, have a team that understands that what we're doing is creating value. Doesn't mean, by the way, as a, a as an organization, you don't have core values that really make a difference to what we do and who we are, because I think we, we do. And what we do is we develop and design communities that really make a difference in our customers' lives. We, as an organization, and what I want to do, and hopefully that legacy will be carried on as the legacy that my father left with me is, I want to look back at any one of our communities, whether it's horizontal land development, master plan development, or a vertical development that's infill, that we can be proud of what we delivered. And uh, to this day from homes, whether they were custom homes or communities that developed in the early part of our career, people come up to me and say, hey, I love my home. I love my community. Hey, I love where I live. Hey, I wasn't your first buyer. I was the third buyer, but what a great place to live. And I think that's, that's why what's meaningful to me, I think meaningful to my team, and it's the way we contribute to, to what we do. And I shared with you, by the way, Jake, you know, I've enjoyed your questions because it's taken me down memory lane. And I start off telling you, my father by trade in school was an architect, and my mom was a designer, but my parents were artists. I wish I could say I resided in that realm. My mom was a painter. My father was a sculptor and they're artists. My father would always told me, he said, when you're delivering a community, it's not a painting. On a painting, you can paint something. And if you don't like it, 
change the canvas, repaint it with white. Just redo it and you can start over. The developer does not have that luxury. He said, if you're going to paint a community, make sure it's something that you're proud of, your kids are proud of, because it's going to endure. And I've taken that to heart. I've taken that to heart. If it's going to be ordinary, I'd rather not build it. And, and it doesn't mean you can't make something affordable and not make an exceptional. You know, we're doing luxury condos in Tampa. You know, I'm very proud of the look and the feel, the design of that community and how our residents have called it home. And, you know, we've done affordable multifamily and the aesthetic, the look, the feel, the quality of construction is something that we're also equally as proud of. I mentioned to you for our master plan communities, we're concerned with the schools. We want to know that the best way we can deliver homes that will continue to have value is by ensuring it has the best possible schools. So I think that theme is something that's dear to my heart, that was dear to the heart of my father, dear to the heart of his father, which started as a plumber and had a plumbing company, Breakstone Plumbing and Heating in Brooklyn, and something that I hope to be able to carry down with my two sons that recently joined me at BTI as they continue on. Now I asked all the guests on the podcast the same traditional closing question, and that is, what's your favorite hotel? <laughs> you don't have to pick one. Oh, God, that's a tricky one. I don't know if I have a favorite. I tend to like the smaller boutiques that, that, are, um, that are architecturally distinct and unusual. There is one that I was at recently that I truly loved and the name of it skips my mind. Outside, maybe you can help me with it. Alico, the landfill drilling company, did a hotel. Oh, Streamsong. Streamsong, thank you. Now, you've been there. No, I, I know about it because it's stunning in the middle of nowhere and it was built by an industrial company. It's Exactly. Yeah. So I was there for the first time eight years ago. And it is an architectural masterpiece. It's Frank Lloyd Wright with mid-century modern contemporary magnificence. It is the choice of materials. Is So when I see something that's just architecturally stunning, when I stay there, it's just, it, it, I just love it. Now, it's in the middle of nowhere. I don't golf. <laughs> okay. Me too. Okay. They golf. have great golfing, but I've gone there for a couple of corporate retreats that we've had. And I, I you know, to me, when I'm there, I find just walking in, in the nature in that area on their trails, but looking at that hotel, I happen to, to love it. So that's what comes to mind. And by the way, forget the golf. I truly will encourage you to stop there and enjoy that hotel because it really is magnificent. I want to check it out. And I actually think a huge opportunity in Florida is to do things like that because it's a big driving state. 
but yet there's not iconic hotels other than Streamsong out there in the middle of, the no- of nowhere, like you'd find in California, where they're just in the nature of Florida, which is actually quite beautiful. Yeah, definitely worth a visit. Definitely. When I went there the first time, I had to tell my wife, I said, honey, I, I, I don't even know how to describe this to you. Here are the pictures. Go to the website. I have to take you. And it really is. It's a retreat in terms of looking at it from the architectural sense. But that's, I think, the driver that I, I really enjoy. Amazing. Thanks yeah. for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. I love your questions. I love the time. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank you.